Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Sister Krista Para, who is a member of the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Sister Krista is originally from a small border town in Arizona and a third-generation Mexican-American. She presently lives in an intercongregational, intercultural community in El Paso, Texas, and is a graduate of the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, where she earned a Master of Divinity and Certificate in Hispanic Theology and Ministry in 2016. She loves accompanying and serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, and presently does so through a pastoral accompaniment role at a shelter in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, Mexico. Sister Krista, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really excited about talking to you, and I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. So thank you so much for this beautiful invitation. You know, it's my pleasure because you're my pal. (laughs) Any excuse to have a a deep, meaningful chat. (laughs) We're homegirls. Any any Thank chance? You, yeah, of course. So so I've been privileged to know you for many years, and yet I I don't know if the world knows the the gem that you are. So let's let's uh, share yeah, that story. Fun. Let's share that story. <laughs> so Sister Krista, where where do you come from? Uh, <laughs> who are you? And and how did you come to know? who you truly are, and how you're meant to give of yourself. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm a border town girl. I'm from Bisbee, Arizona, close to the U.S.-Mexico border. I come from a large Mexican-American family. I love, love, love my family, my roots. I feel so blessed to be raised um, in the Catholic faith. My journey really begins in my hometown. I feel like the border is in my blood, being Mexican and American, uh, part of two rich, beautiful cultures. And in that in-between space also, I feel that being raised in a small town and a big family has really made me very community-oriented and always feeling like that sense of interconnection with everyone, Mm. that we belong to one another, we're interconnected that I'm a member of the group mm. and um, that's that's part of being who I am. Let's see, when I was around five or six years old, I moved to Phoenix uh, with my mom and my two younger brothers and lived with my grandparents. They had a huge influence on me growing up. I have three brothers. I have one older brother and two younger brothers and our family is very, very, very close. Mm. My dad lived in Bisbee at that time. So growing up with my grandparents, it was just really beautiful to be in an intergenerational household and I was very, very close to them. Being raised in a strong family and uh, being raised in the faith, I really never, ever imagined that religious life would be my path at all. But when I was a senior in high school, I was voted uh, most likely to become a nun. And it was a public school. And I I really was so surprised because I thought, how in the world would they get that from me? Like, I was a cheerleader. I loved to, of course, go to parties and yeah. dancing and yeah. had a boyfriend. And, but... That was 
really kind of providential because mm. <laughs> uh, when I was 21, the seed was planted again with this whole idea of being a nun. I didn't know anything about being a religious other than the movies like Sister Act and Sound of Music. <laughs> and we have this definitely... in common, my friend. Do you know this? Yeah. Like, do you no, know? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt your story, but that's also <laughs> no, me. Okay. You know, I just I, the context is so different for me because I'm in a farm in Iowa, but I didn't know any nuns. I only know Sister Act and Sound of Music, and I also was a cheerleader in high school. I was not voted most Where likely to become a nun, but. <laughs> but <laughs> That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened when you were 21? What happened? So I was sitting in the church one day. It's the same church that I would go to with my nana, with my grandma, mm. um, when I was a little girl. And I just loved to go into this space just to have some quiet, just to pray, just to be. And I was um, going to school full time. I was working for um, Wells Fargo Bank. Mm. And I was on my way to work. And I just stopped in the church. And as I was sitting there, just kind of praying and asking God, like, I felt I was at a crossroads. I think I had just broken up with my boyfriend at that time. And I was wondering what's going on with my life right now. And um, Sister Gabby came into the church. I didn't know her as Sister Gabby at that time. And she came right up to me. And um, right before she approached me, I just felt in my heart that I was talking at God, but not really listening to God. Mm. And that had never occurred to me. And then I thought, well, Maybe I don't listen because I'm afraid of what God might be asking me to do. And that was a really strange thought for me. And I said, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And so Sister Gabby came up to me and she said, have you ever thought about being a nun? And I said, <laughs> oh, my gosh, no, that is the most bizarre question ever. And you didn't know her at all? No, no, she didn't introduce herself. She didn't say, hi, I'm Sister Gabby. Nothing. I so gotta try that just, with some women. <laughs> yeah, it was a powerful invitation. It really was because I was stunned. And then I was like, no, no, you got the wrong girl. You know, I want to get married. I want to have children. Yeah. I come from a big Mexican American family. And it just wasn't on my radar at all. And then she said, come to the convent. I want you to meet the nuns. And I said, oh, okay. As soon as I walked through the door of the convent, I felt so at home, like there was something within me that just felt the sense of being at home in a space that I had never been before. That was really surprising. And then as I got to know the nuns, they were so down to earth and just themselves and they weren't wearing habit. I definitely feel like that's a very special call and I respect that very much. This particular group of sisters that I met, they weren't in habit. And I noticed on the wall that they had these um, like newspaper clippings that were framed of the Phoenix Suns nuns. And they really liked the Phoenix Suns basketball team. So they there was a story that was done on them. And I was like, oh, my gosh, nuns can like sports. I didn't know that. Like, I have three <laughs> brothers. They love sports. They love basketball. So I was delightfully surprised. <laughs> and then I went home and I told my mom about this encounter. And as soon as I started telling her about it, I began to cry. And she was like, what's going on? And I was like, I don't want to be a nun. I want to get married. I want to have children. Mm. I just didn't think um, about religious life or didn't know very much about religious life. But before I left the convent, Sister Gabby had invited me to come back. She says, why don't you just come once a week? And I just want to get to know you. And I really was hungry for a deeper connection with God, a deeper relationship with God. And so I thought, okay, this would be a way that I can deepen my relationship with God and get to know these cool sisters. That's how the journey began toward religious life. The community that you first visited, is that the community you ended up joining? 
Yes, I entered with the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary, also known as Loretto Sisters. Our founder is the Venerable Mary Ward. We were founded in 1609 in England, and really um, she was very much influenced by the Jesuits, so St. Ignatius of Loyola, Ignatian spirituality. We have the same constitution as the Jesuits as well, so I learned all of that as I was getting to know Sister Gabby. It's really beautiful because in this journey, I feel like as I was on this journey in religious life, I really was getting to know more about myself and understanding more of my story. When I was in my retreat, the retreat was the eight-day spiritual exercises. And mm. one of the first exercises that I did was writing down my grace history, my whole entire story from even before I was born all the way to the present. What I realized is that at every crossroad in my life, I was loved unconditionally. Mm. So I've always, always felt loved of course, by my wonderful father and my beautiful, amazing mother and my siblings, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents. I've always known what it was like to be unconditionally loved. So the gift in that is, okay, if I received all this love and incredible friends that I grew up with, what do I do with that gift of love? How do I respond? So I respond by sharing that love and looking at what are the ways that I can share this great love that I've been given and this infinite capacity to love. And I looked at the vocations of married life and single life and religious life and went through a whole process of weighing pros and cons and spending a lot of time in silence and a lot of time listening. It was also a beautiful time to be able to grieve losses in my life and to be able to heal from difficult things that happened in my life in the context of this retreat. So at the end of that retreat, I realized, well, I am so loved. And this drawing toward religious life is so strong in me. I have to try it out. If I don't, I'll always wonder. So I really took this leap of faith. My spiritual directors encouraged me to look at many different orders before joining one order, which was uh, very wise on his part. He first said, well, what order are you going to join? And I said, well, the Loretto Sisters, of course, the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And he said, well, I, I wouldn't recommend that you marry the first guy that you date because that <laughs> wouldn't be wise. You would need you probably date a few people before you decide who you're going to marry. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting way to put it. So I just started calling orders, calling mm. sisters. And I called and I said, hey, uh, I think I might be interested in religious life. Can I come over for dinner? And so <laughs> fortunately, the sisters were very, very open to me visiting. So I, I got to meet, uh, I think, like nine different orders when I was looking at which community to join. Mm. And how old were you when you were doing all that searching and... Uh, well, actually, so between the time I met Sister Gabby when I was 21 and 26, I was still battling within myself. So the retreat wasn't until I was 27. There was a long stretch of time when I was meeting with Sister Gabby. I went to Grand Canyon University, go Lopes. After that, <laughs> um, I, I was working at Wells Fargo Bank. And before I graduated, Sister Gabby had invited me. Actually, I had shared with her I had this desire to go on a mission somewhere, a mission trip. I didn't even know at the time what that really meant, but I wanted to serve after I graduated from college. I didn't know about the Jesuit Volunteer Program or yeah. uh, what's another one, the Peace Corps, any of those. I didn't know about any of those kind of programs. So she told me about our sisters who were in Lima, Peru serving, and she had encouraged me to go. And she found someone that wanted to anonymously donate a plane ticket for me to go to Peru. Mm. So I went with one of 
my best friends that I've known since first grade. And we went to brew together and had this incredible experience. Um, but that was also really formative for me because, oh gosh, and I forgot one important piece. Okay. So the guy that I, the guy that I was dating when I was in high school, oh yeah, right before I went went to Peru, we got engaged oh, <laughs> to get married. You did, <laughs> yeah. So that's a, like a little twist in the story. A twist in the plot. <laughs> twist in the plot. There's <laughs> uh, this great, great man who. Um, mm. Just I knew from grade school, actually. So we got engaged before I went to Peru. And once I got to Peru and met the sisters and got to see the incredible work they were doing, I'd never seen a place so impoverished before when I went there in this little colonia that the sisters served in where people didn't have running water, didn't have electricity, uh, were really struggling to survive daily. That was a very like heart-opening, eye-opening experience for me. And seeing how the sisters entered into the lives of the people mm-hmm. and how the sisters were living among the people, with the people, making decisions together, building projects together. There was a great mutuality among the sisters and the people that they served. And in um, during this experience, I met this young, beautiful, Peruvian sister who was just about to take final vows, um, Sister Mitos. And there was something in my heart that I remember even when we walked to the top of this um, colonia with two of the sisters. And I remember looking out and feeling my heart so overwhelmed by the poverty mm. and feeling so moved by this experience and seeing the sisters interact with the people and there was something moving in me and then when I met this young sister she told me that she was a nurse and um, she's also very close to her family before she entered religious life she was engaged she broke off her engagement she entered religious life she um, had shared with me her struggles her joys and as they were getting ready for this ceremony it was this incredible experience of the entire Pueblo coming together. The Pueblo is like 24 hours north of Lima in the Amazonas. And to see how the whole entire community was coming together to put together the celebration for Midos, seeing like people were were bringing, donating like cows and chickens mm. and potatoes and cuis and cuis are a little guinea pig, which is like a delicacy in Peru. Mm. And witnessing how excited like it was it was her vows but it was really like a celebration of religious life for the entire community Mm. the experience impacted me so much because i i heard um each night of the week preparing for the final vows each of the sisters would share their vocation stories Mm. and when sister mito shared her vocation story she said that the way that she told her story of like falling in love with god and committing her life to this vocation which at that time was really foreign to me. I couldn't understand how she was so happy in this life. She she was like, she was lit up. She was glowing. And after she shared her story, I remember that next night I did not sleep at all. And wondering like, what is going on with me? Why am I so moved by this? And really scared and, and I'm engaged to get married and what is happening? And all of a sudden I just realized I can't get married <laughs> and I need to spend more time with this and see what's what's happening. So I called my fiance from Peru and broke off the engagement, which was not a very kind thing to do. Mm, um, but I knew it really was, it was sad because I, yeah. I never wanted to hurt him that way. Right, and, of course. Um, 
but then there was a freedom, you know, to to be able to explore mm. this path that I never that I didn't know about, that I never imagined myself traveling. There was another uh, pivot, really, really like monumental experience that I had mm. when I was in Peru. I remember looking in the convent, there was a map of all the places that the IBVMs were in the world. As I was looking at this map, my eyes went directly toward the border, in particularly like Ciudad Juarez, El Paso, mm. which isn't that far from where I was born, where I grew up. And I remember looking at the map and pointing there and being like, why aren't we there? Why are IBVMs not in Mexico? Why are we not at the border? And I was saying we, and I wasn't a sister yet. Mm. It took a couple of years before I actually um, did the retreat, the eight-day spiritual uh, exercises. And that's when I finally decided. But Peru was definitely a significant moment in my Mm. journey. It really, really touched me the way the sisters were with the people there was a little boy i remember in the colonia who was sitting on these steps and he was crying and one of the sisters went right up to him she knew his name she knew his story his family she sat with him and she said what's going on and he was so disappointed because he took an exam and he failed the exam and i remember how she was just so present to him and just with him and she shared with me that his mother really struggled and she was in the profession of prostitution because that was the only way she could earn a living for her family. And so this little boy living with his mother was looking for a way to have a better life and and to look for an opportunity to get a good job and to get his mother out of that situation. And I just remember how tender the sister was with this young man and thinking, wow, like I, I want to be able to do something like that. I want to be able to live with the people and to, to be involved in their daily lives and to sit with them in their struggles and in their joys. And now you are. This is your life. Yay! Your 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 Yay! dream came true. I'm living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> and and that call within a call that you heard of like, why aren't we there? And, you know what is? Yeah, see that's that's yeah you're right there. Mm-hmm. You are every day with the people. I'm at the heart of the mission. <laughs> You're at the heart of the mission. And you've talked about love and, and tenderness, and you've described this so well in your story so far and how that really moved your heart and guided you forward in your path and in your exploring and, and compelled you to commit to Christ in this this unusual, wacky way those of us that our sisters have done. So yeah. maybe you could just describe for us, what is your life and your mission like now? Mm. Now that you're living the dream and your work, yes. what's your work like? When I entered religious life, I moved to Chicago for formation. And I had the great blessing of going to Catholic Theological Union and studying there among other, well, ministers actually of all ages and um, religious and lay and people of different faiths. And it was such a rich setting for me. But the experience of Peru and looking at why aren't we in Mexico? Why aren't we at the border? And then I went to public school all my life. So Catholic Theological Union provided me like the foundation Mm. and also gave me a beautiful model of ministry that was very inclusive, that was mutual. Really, it instilled in me a deep desire to enter every space with so much respect and to really see every ground as sacred ground mm. and to, to 
I don't know how to say it, to walk humbly, to walk uh, just with great reverence for everyone who's been in that space and the way that God has been working in that space for for years and years and years. Yeah. <laughs> and just to be to truly be a student, to listen and to learn. So the idea of accompaniment was also very much ingrained in me. And what I love about the word accompaniment is that in the word acompañar, compañero or compañera is a part of that, which means a companion on the journey. And also the word pan, which is in that as well, which means bread. Mm -hmm. So you're breaking bread with your companions. You are accompanying people in this way. Mm -hmm. So I, I say all of that because that's all very foundational for me as I enter the space in Ciudad Juarez, which I've been there for now four years. And in 2016, I wanted to explore the possibility of coming to the border and begin the ministry, not knowing exactly what I was going to do. But when I was at CTU, I remember I took a class on religious life with Maria Simperman. We were looking at what does the world need right now? Like, kind of the idea of where does our deepest desire meet the, the need? I had this great opportunity to explore what's happening in Ciudad Juarez. And at that time, I was looking at the, the femicides that were happening, the mass killing of, of women, and how much of an impact each horrific death had on the community of Juarez. And what I was struck by is that the families of the women who had been killed in Juarez coming together and creating this campaign of Ni Una Mas, which means not one more, not one more woman should die, not one more daughter of Juarez should die. Um, no one else should have to go through such a nightmare. Um, many of the women worked in factories and they would disappear they would be raped, tortured, dismembered in their bodies, sometimes found in mass graves, sometimes found in different places in Juarez. And trying to find out who's behind these killings, it's it, it's very complicated. The families usually that are targeted are families that were in very impoverished places that didn't have the resources or the means to get lawyers to have people that could defend them and the people that we're committing these crimes still really haven't been haven't been prosecuted haven't been mm. haven't been found there's a question of is it the cartels is it a cult who is behind these killings there's a co-op in Juarez called Centro Santa Catalina a few Adrian Dominican sisters that started this mm. co-op accompanying the women in the colonia they spent like six months walking through the colonia trying to figure out what is it that this area needs right now they realized that the women have a longing for spirituality, to learn more, to grow as a, a faith community. They wanted a space where their children could study and do their homework after school. Mm. They wanted a way to earn money. So they began to make things together like scarves and tablecloths and mm. that idea of being in what is and exploring more and learning and also holding the devastating loss, learning about the femicides, also learning about what's possible when a community of women come together in the midst of very difficult situations. All of those factors really formed me and impacted me yeah. and gave me a strong desire to be there. 
So right before I took vows, I went to El Paso and Juarez and looked at what are some opportunities here? Where could I get involved? I'm even thinking about Centro Santa Catalina. And the timing just didn't seem quite right because I was just taking final vows. And also the, the sisters in Phoenix that I had entered with originally, mm. I had been gone for nine years in formation mm. in Chicago. I felt it was important to go back to Phoenix to live with our sisters for a, a few years before going out on my own because mm. our, our average age is around 80. I went to Phoenix for three years, which was a, a great gift because two of my sisters that were my mentor, Sister Christine and Sister Gabby, passed away during that time. So mm. I got to accompany them as they were transitioning to heaven. And also Father Mike, who was very instrumental in my journey as well, who was very close to our, our sisters who are all from Ireland, who are mm. missionaries, who came way back in the 50s. All of those pieces were super important in leading me to be ready to actually move to El Paso and to work in Ciudad Juarez. Yeah. Four years ago, after having some time back in Phoenix, I worked at St. Francis Xavier Elementary School, which is another formative, wonderful experience mm. with a Jesuit community, and also helped me to deepen what does it look like to be in the role of a pastoral accompaniment, mm. which is what CTU had prepared me for. Mm. And then I got to, to put it in practice and learn what does that look like in a school setting, in a Jesuit setting. I worked a lot with Spanish-speaking families in a group called Puentes y Posibilidades, Bridges and Possibilities. Mm. We formed this little community that also was the groundwork for going to Juarez and being with the people in a way that I couldn't have been with the people in 2016, mm. <laughs> in a way that I brought, I brought my, my full self and also was very much open to learning and growing with the community that I got to serve. So when I began in Ciudad Juarez, I was in a couple different places. I was in the port of entry where people were being expelled back into Mexico, people who were seeking asylum because of the Migrant Protection Protocol Program that was mm -hmm. in place at that time, also known as Remain in Mexico. It was forcing people who were seeking asylum to wait on the Mexico side, mm -hmm. which is very dangerous, and it puts a very vulnerable population in an even more vulnerable space. And not having family or friends or resources to survive while they're waiting for their court dates on the Mexico side was a very challenging a situation at that time. I was a part of a group of humanitarian assistants who would welcome the people as they were arriving into Juarez. And the people were very disoriented, very hungry, just traumatized from the mm. experience. There, there's so many levels of trauma when people are coming mm. from the countries that our families are coming from from Guatemala, from Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Cuba, Haiti, Brazil. That first level of trauma is the reasons why people flee, which has to do with violence, has to do with the presence of gangs, political instability. And then they make this difficult, dangerous journey through multiple countries, through Mexico, typically with smugglers, um, but are very vulnerable to being kidnapped, to being raped, to being robbed, have gone through so much suffering. And then they get to our border, enter the U.S. and are put into a detention center for many of the people at that time. And the detention center is known as La Yelera, the icebox. So um, people have horrific stories being treated in very inhumane ways, being in crowded cells. Maybe there would be like one toilet and it's just an open area with lots of people, very little space to even like 
lay down very cold. They were given like these aluminum blankets that they just cover up with. And there are women and children and babies and families and and just in, in terrible conditions. So when they would arrive to us at the port of entry, they came with a lot of needs. And one of the needs was being able to find a, a shelter, a safe space that they could could rest and regroup and try to figure out what's next, where, how am I going to survive in Juarez for so many months until my first court date. Being in those spaces, I, I remember so many times my heart feeling so overwhelmed because for many of the families that would arrive, they would talk to their family members for the first time since who knows how long they weren't able to talk to their families in the detention center. And I remember people like falling to their knees, crying yeah. and feeling that they had somehow that they didn't realize their goal of being able mm -hmm. to be in the U.S. and to go to where their families are in the U.S. so that they can start working and their children could start going to school, that they could begin their lives as they would hope to. And as it's a human right to seek asylum, so they should be allowed to come to the U.S. and to wait in the U.S. for their asylum hearings. Wow, Krista, Thank you so much for describing the reality of, of Horace and what what life is like there and and what death is like there, what what the traumas are like, what how it is a place of passage and and how you are present to the people who are hurting and traumatized and healing and on a journey. I'm so thankful for the way you just painted pictures for us of what the reality is, especially for me. You know, here I am all the way in Chicago and the border feels so far away, yet it's in my heart. And I feel so powerless. And besides, like, signing a petition, asking for asylum to be opened up again and calling the White House, I really don't know what to do. I mean, I can pray, I keep praying, but, like, please tell me, friend... What do you most hope those of us who are so far from the border and can't even really conceptualize the horror and the beauty and the blend of all the humanity that's there and the heartache, what is the message you hope that we each can understand and hold in our hearts and how can we act with compassion? I know that stories are so powerful like to, to really listen to where our families are coming from and mm. to pay attention to people who live at the margins and we have no control over where we're born i was born on the u.s side of the border had i been born 10 minutes further south i would have been born in mexico i would not have had the privileges that i have being born in the U.S. with a social security number, being able to go to college because I was able to apply for financial aid, being yeah. able to drive, being able to get a job. And I didn't do anything to earn the social security number. Right. And so when I meet the people that I meet that are from these countries, unfortunately, with all of the injustices and a lot of the challenges that our families have in these other countries, the U.S. has directly been a part of creating those challenges. Mm. And there's so much inequality. There's so much injustice. And just to be aware of our privilege and the role that we've played in the suffering that is occurring around the world. Mm. I think that's really important. 
for me, when I meet our families and listen to their stories, uh, there's a lot of cartel violence, for example. I'm in this shelter in Juarez, and I've been there for about a year. It's a sacred space because we're creating community with women and children who have gone through a lot. And we have this space of welcoming, which is really modeled after what Pope Francis asks of us to be able to welcome, to protect, to integrate, and to promote human dignity, human development in these sacred spaces when we accompany migrants and refugees. And so that welcoming is really important because when our families come to us, all we can do is love them and provide the basics of food, shelter, clothing, um, and also to learn from our families because our brothers and sisters, our siblings teach us how how to accompany. Mm. One of our moms, her son was kidnapped by a cartel and burnt to death. And so was his wife and his mm. wife was pregnant. Her daughter, who was in her 30s, her first husband was kidnapped by the cartel and killed. And then three years later, she remarried and he was also kidnapped and killed. Oh my God. And so talk about a tsunami of grief and how these families continue to have so much faith and so much resilience to be able to persevere through a difficult journey and to arrive at the border in hopes of seeking asylum in the U.S., but when I was accompanying these families, we have the gift of having counselors, we have a psychologist that also helps in the healing process. But the families have a chance to be in a safe space where they can actually breathe mm. and focus on themselves, come back home to themselves, to be able to regroup before going um, into the next step, going into the next part of their journey. But while this family was there, there was a woman from Guatemala that arrived and she was eight months pregnant. And the, the mother of the, the family that I shared that had lost her son and her two son-in-laws asked me if we could have a baby shower at the shelter for mm. this mom. And in the midst of her own grief, she stepped back and just wanted to provide some joy for this mom mm. who was so far away from her home in Guatemala. So the women came together. I went to the store with a few of the women and they really wanted to buy the items they wanted to get the gifts they wanted to come up with the games and so we celebrated new life in the shelter with this mom it was a beautiful moment because we just want to be able to do normal things yeah. <laughs> and to be able to enjoy life but also just to be not identified by the traumas that we've gone through. Mm. It was just a good lesson for me to look at the new life, look at the potential to celebrate the potential for just having a party, you know, in the midst of, <laughs> yeah. of so much, so much suffering. There was another woman, Rosita, that had a big impact on my life as well in the shelter. She had shared with me that she had been raped by a cartel member. And because of that, she and her two children had to flee from where they were in Mexico. She told me the next day, she said, you know, Sister Krista, when you think of me, this is what I want you to remember, actually. In my small pueblo, I was one of the leaders in our liturgy team. So there's one priest for like 20 pueblos. So the priest doesn't come around like maybe every couple months, mm. he'll come and celebrate mass. So she's a communion minister. and. 
every Sunday, she would be the one that would preach. And she said, I would preach and I was really good. And she said, that's amazing, Rosita. That's, that's awesome. And she said, and you know what else? I prepared all of the children in our village for their sacraments. Mm. She had this very active role in her parish. And mm. she was sharing with me who she is as a minister. And I was learning from her. Mm. And I was deeply touched by that because really, she didn't say this, but I felt like she was saying, see me as a whole person. Mm. See me as Rosita. See me with with my gifts, with my talents, with what I can do. Don't just see me as a woman who was raped. Yeah. And so when I think of Rosita, I think of her as this incredible minister, <laughs> knowing that, yes, she suffered. The trauma is just, it's just unimaginable. It, the, mm. the stories that we hear of, of people being kidnapped, people being held in these horrific situations and hearing about brothers who have disappeared, fathers who have disappeared, mothers who have disappeared. <sighs> It shakes me to my core every time because I am so, so close with my mom and my dad and my brothers and my nieces, my nephews, my sister-in-laws, my family, my cousins. I, I couldn't imagine what that would be like. I appreciate life more. I learn from these incredibly strong, faith-filled people that I, I am so blessed to walk with every day. Krista, I'm so grateful for this time together and for this conversation and I am as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I just want to say one of the blessings of this that I think is so sacred is in your storytelling, in your describing of people, in your telling of truth, you have somehow brought us each to the holy ground. I was curious about how you would define what does it mean to be a pastoral accompaniment, to do the ministry of accompaniment? Like, and I was thinking, oh, she's going to get philosophical and she's going to quote some theologians. But all you did is you, you brought us into the scenes. You told us the truth of who people are and you helped us to know that what your work is, is really about being with people in the joys and the hardships of life. You are there and you are, you are with them in it. What I feel encouraged by is, okay, how can I, in my own context, never see a person as a number, never see a person in a narrow way, but always have an open heart and an open mind that's compassionate and sees the fullness of who a person is. So thank you yes. for just showing oh, me the answer to my question through your storytelling. I think how I would also respond is that we have people who are undocumented and people who are seeking asylum and people who are in great need all over the country. Yes. And I feel like there's great potential in, I mean, El Paso is a phenomenal model of hospitality, mm. especially through Annunciation House, and seeing how that can spread in other parts of the U.S. where there are um, safe spaces where people can be accompanied and received and welcomed. That is a great invitation to see where are the people who have been on the move, people who are seeking asylum in our communities, yeah. in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in New York, and Kansas and Denver, wherever, you know, like all right. over the country to pay attention and to see what are the needs and 
and how to build those relationships. And I'm aware we have listeners in other parts of the world too. Like, yes, I mean, this is a global phenomenon and and everywhere a community of faith ought to Mm -hmm. be, if I can just preach for a bit, (laughs) every community of faith ought to look around and say like, who are the people in need here? Who are the, on the margins, even the people that are almost invisible because they're hidden because they don't feel safe revealing themselves and how do we reach out to them how do we include them how do we serve them how can this community come together and strengthen itself in faith and compassion so that it it can respond to the needs of our neighbors I mean this is the gospel this is what Christ has modeled for us and so with all that being said I'd like to invite you to share in your life story, the stories of the women that you accompany, the messiness religious life is, and all the things that are true and part of who you are. What for you is the messiness of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? The messiness of being a disciple of Christ it requires ongoing inner work. <laughs> so yes, oh. it is not easy because I am constantly learning more about myself. So I am very acutely aware of my limitations, mm-hmm. <laughs> of my own struggles. When you're in these spaces of trauma, it is very natural to be triggered mm-hmm. <laughs> and also to to absorb the stories and um, what I'm learning is if I'm not doing my own work, my own messy work, (laughs) then I cannot be as fully present to the people that I get to accompany. So a a commitment to a prayer life for one, (laughs) Mm. and also to do my work with my spiritual director, with the counselor. I really believe I guess it's the idea of wounded healer. It's that we're looking at our own woundedness and on our own journey of healing to walk with our siblings on the journey of healing towards wholeness for all of us. Because I I really do believe we belong to one another. I do believe that we are made in the image of God and to honor and love one another is our call, everyone. (laughs) And so whoever is in front of us, we are called to love. <laughs> I believe that with all of my heart. It's messy. I, I think the, the the situation of immigration, it's global, it's complicated. And at the same time, it's not <laughs> because people have a human right to live in a safe space and to work and have access to healthcare and have access to clean water and have access to resources. We all have that right. <laughs> we have a divine right. And so to honor that and to see how can we, how can our global community make that a reality for everyone? Um, People shouldn't have to live in fear of their lives or not able to run their small business because they're being extorted by a criminal organization and they can't even afford to support their own families. And they have to pay out to a criminal organization, a part of their profits, like these kinds of things are happening, you know? And so it's messy and complicated, but I, I think when we deal with our own messiness first, <laughs> that's the key to being able to live in the messiness around us. And I think to be able to love ourselves through it, to, yeah. to love ourselves in the messiness is really key. And when we can love ourselves, we can better love the people that we're, we're with. 
I personally struggle just, just loving myself sometimes is a struggle so mm. if I can do that then I, I feel like I can love God's beloved people better mm. knowing that I am loved and held by God we all are loved and held by God I want to respond and say that as you describe all this, I have a image of the resurrected Christ who is just full of light and love yes. and is loving each of us, and he is wounded. Mm. His wounds are real, mm-hmm. and yet he heals. So we don't have to show up for each other perfect and polished. Right. We don't have to be pristine, but it's in it's from our own vulnerability and brokenness that we can show up Mm -hmm. and share and love. Right. And I'm hearing too how through relationships and community we are taught how to love ourselves and each other. And we get to know the love of God. Absolutely. Uh, We're instruments of God's love, no doubt. Yeah. How can our listeners support you in your ministry and learn more about the realities of, what's the name of the shelter in Horace? And can they send donations or something? (laughs) Our shelter is uh, Casa Eodis. The Sisters of Our Lady of Charity of the Good Shepherd Mm. are the sisters who, who run the shelter. The, the way I, I've been receiving donations uh, so far is just um, the check is written to the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and then I can cash the check and I can bring it to the shelter. And then we buy whatever we need, food, uh, diapers, um, <sighs> cleaning supplies, whatever it is that the needs are. Medical, uh, also we pay for medicine and, mm. and medical services uh, for, for our families. We're, we're completely dependent on donations. Great. There are lots of great organizations. Obviously, the Annunciation House in El Paso has over 40 years of experience accompanying our siblings who are on the move and have just entered uh, the U.S. So Annunciation House is another great organization. But I think first and foremost is obviously prayer, 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 please to pray for yeah. our families and especially our families who are are still on the move uh, around the world, going through very difficult um, situations. Their travels are are horrendous through deserts, through jungles, through territories of criminal organizations. So mm. prayers is, is key. And also to connect within your own communities in uh, areas that are, are serving our families who are migrants as well. There, there's so much need. Mm. L- just looking for, for opportunities in your own areas uh, where, where people are, are being welcomed and accompanied. Yeah, thank you. And we'll put the the links in the show notes, okay? Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Krista. It's my, my joy. Thank you so much, my beloved sister. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission 
at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.